Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 350th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Jason Wink. Jason is the CEO of Altruist, a relatively new RIA custodian that's quickly grown to serve more than 3,500 advisory firms across the country, making it the fourth largest independent RIA custodian by firm count. What's unique about Jason, though, is how he built Altruist as an all-in-one custodian platform for RIAs that includes the portfolio management portfolio performance reporting software that most advisory firms have to purchase separately. As Jason found while he was building his own TAMP a decade ago, that the limitations of current RIA custodians made it impossible for his TAMP to build technology that would really make his own middle and back office teams more efficient. So Jason decided to build an RIA custodian to solve that gap for everyone else as well. In this episode, we talk in depth about why Jason built Altruist as a solution to help RAs based on his own experience as an engineer and an RA owner and a TAMP owner to leverage the economics of being an RA custodian in order to offer advisors their core investment systems at a lower cost. How Jason leveraged many of the programs, infrastructures, and processes that he'd already built when he owned his own RA and TAMP to jumpstart Altruist in the early years. And why Jason believes that the future will inevitably involve RAA custodians providing more and more of an advisor's technology stack for the simple reason that the economics of RAA custody business are actually so strong that independent software providers may not be capable of being price competitive with custodians in the future. And thus why so many investment software providers have been increasingly pivoting towards the managed asset business themselves. We also talk about how, while building his first business, a website with low-cost monthly subscription dedicated to helping people find 401k solutions, Jason found that most people who needed his help were retirees that needed a financial advisor and inspired him to launch his own RAA. How Jason rapidly grew his firm and attracted up to hundreds of prospects per month after a client posed a question to him about a fixed indexed annuity and inspired him to make a blog post where he wrote a spreadsheet with all the internal rate of return calculations that he'd done, and it turned that into an entire niche content marketing strategy for retirees. And why Jason was inspired to sell his RA book of business and launch his own TAMP formula folios after receiving inquiries from advisors who were then interested in learning how he grew his firm to $300 million in five years and how they could plug into the replicable marketing processes that he had built. And be certain to listen to the end, where Jason shares how he truly believes the fiduciary standard can apply not only how advisors serve their clients, but also in how vendors serve advisors. How even though Jason began Altruist at the age of 38, in a world that still celebrates 20-something-year-old entrepreneurs, he's grateful for the opportunities to build the businesses he did previously because it gave him the knowledge and time to be ready for launching Altruist when he did. And why, even though he's had many successful businesses within the industry, Jason is passionate about inspiring even more change and creating better industry standards in the hopes that advisors better leveraged by technology will eventually make it so that financial advice can be afforded by anyone seeking advice, not just the mass affluent and ultra high net worth clientele. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Jason Wink. Welcome, Jason Wank, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Hey, man. It's a pleasure to be here. Super excited. Uh, I'm really excited about today's episode. And and I think just getting to 
getting to nerd out, I think probably pretty deep dive on just like the actual business and reality of RIA custody and clearing platforms and just how that whole platform thing actually works. Like I find for most of us in the advisor world, we, we just kind of plug into these platforms and they're there and they do their thing. And most of us don't even pay anything for them directly. They're, they're just kind of there. Uh, a lot of other countries, you, know, you actually have to pay for that layer. Uh, as an advisor in in the U.S., a lot of the platforms are so big, we don't we don't even have a fee. We just kind of plug into historically like a Schwab or a Fidelity or a TD Ameritrade or a Pershing, uh, and and just kind of do our thing. And I know the reality is there's well, quite literally many more layers to that deeper. And particularly when you get into why does it feel like some of our technology on the custody and clearing end has lagged over the years, and so. Um, as as many uh, listeners probably already know, and we'll spend more time on your your building a, a a new RA custodial platform called Altruist to try to change some of that. I think overall, just I'm looking forward to getting to nerd out a little bit about the the RIA custody clearing platform space in the first place, as well as a little bit of your backstory. Because I'm not sure a lot of people actually know that this is this is not your first rodeo. This is not your first company that you've built and scaled. And so uh, I always enjoy talking about the entrepreneurial journey as well. And I think we'll we'll get to do a little bit of that conversation too. Should be fun. I'm a, I'm a grizzled old veteran, uh, Michael. So <laughs> you are a grizzled old veteran now. <laughs> so, I, so I think actually in that vein, I'd love to start by hearing you share a little bit of your journey, like where and how you actually got to the financial services industry in the first place and uh, uh, and landed in the in the advisor world. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll try to keep it like semi-succinct, but uh, I, I'd never taken a finance class. I had no real interest in finance growing up, but largely because, you know, my family didn't have a whole lot of, of money and, and I didn't know anybody with a whole lot of money. So I you know, kind of came of age in the 90s and uh, during that time period, you know, personal computers became more and more commonplace. Um, internet became, uh, you know, pretty pretty commonly available. I sort of left the small town that I grew up in, a little farming community in West Michigan, and and like the internet made the world flat. All of a sudden, like it was just remarkable the access to knowledge, and also like that kind of like opened up um, just a real curiosity with computers and um, and specifically the internet, like just like the the sort of age of information. It was really remarkable. So. Um, I, you know, I wouldn't say I was a refined software engineer by any stretch, but, you know, it uh, was definitely a, you know, all consumed hacker and, you know, built all sorts of things, whether it be, you know, kind of DOS prompt oriented games to, you know, switching out, you know, um, circuit boards and trying to, you know, make my computers faster and, uh, you know, insert new graphics cards. And so, you know, that really le- led my, my, my interest, you know, and, you know, I think, you know, sometimes, um, you know, things always happen for a reason. Uh, when I was a sophomore in college, I got my then girlfriend pregnant. You know, it's these things kids sometimes are not the most careful, um, but it ended up being like the biggest blessing in my life. Um, I have this incredible son who's now a college student himself, but it very much changed my perspective. Um, and uh, I knew that, um, yeah, I didn't have a whole lot of family help, but I, I took it upon myself. It's like, hey, I, I'm definitely, I want to be a great dad. I want to be a good provider. Um, and, you know, that's kind of how I ended up in finance. I, I was, uh, um, you know, doing an internship at Morgan Stanley, 
but it wasn't to be a financial person. It was just like I was legitimately like helping people install Microsoft Outlook, <laughs> you know, getting it synced on their computers. Um, it was pretty b- basic, you know, kind of IT and, you know, kind of networking type of work. Um, and but it, but it opened up a door, you know, kind of an opportunity, um, you know, for me to join. I was only 19 at the time, but that's why I got into finance. Um, I, I learned a lot. Um, I was able to go through, um, you know, the, uh, you know, kind of like crash course of, um, of uh, you know, kind of the financial system at large. And, and most of the work I did in the early days was, you know, they called the systems analyst, but it was basically just, um, you know, uh, what today you might call like, uh, you know, again, a uh, entry level software engineer. But, um, uh, but in any event, that was kind of how I got started, right? And I, I would say that the, the, the real eye opening, like kind of how I got, like I fell in love is I think if you're, if you're an engineer, kind of like, at least if your mind works that way, you love solving problems. And man, there were some problems <laughs> in the industry. Um, I um, decided I want to do something that helped regular people. So I built uh, my first business was, you know, kind of a now defunct, you know, website that would help people with their 401ks. Um, Pretty straightforward, really like, you know, hey, where do you work and what's your goals? And, you know, take you through a risk assessment. It would try to like identify within their plan, you know, how they could invest their money. It was a a subscription business, um, you know, just like a low cost monthly subscription. And, you know, what I learned was that it worked really well, by the way, at first. Um, But, you know, I'd say like around the nine month mark is when I experienced really high churn of people canceling. It was largely because my advice um, would basically tell them to never change anything. And so after like six or seven or eight months of them like paying $20 a month, they'd be like, why am I paying you $20 a month to tell me that? It's it's hard to build yeah. a subscription model around the persistent message of do nothing. Yeah. I mean, I was obviously maybe way early to the game, right? This is like, you know, early 2000s. Um, and uh, you know, not, not a lot of people, I don't know that anyone in the country was doing a subscription-based, you know, sort of like 401k yeah. help at the time. So um uh, but what I learned is, is that when people would 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 um, would cancel, I started asking, you know, sort of like an automated, you know, sort of, um, you know, why'd you cancel prompt, and and what I learned is there's a lot of people who actually had a, a quite a bit of money. What I learned was that it was people in their 50s and 60s who were getting ready for retirement, and they were seeking 401k help on the internet, finding the website, you know, ultimately. Um, you know, canceling, but then saying, "Hey, if you just would do this for me, I'd pay you a lot more money." And that's how I learned about the RI industry. I, I then was like, "Well, how do you do that? <laughs> like, how do you actually get registered? Like, what do you have to do to to charge people?" And I learned about you know custodians and the required software to do things like you know kind of uh, you know trading across multiple accounts and fee billing and like it was a real crash course. I mean, I had zero knowledge, no mentor. There wasn't a lot of info on the internet back then. I don't think you'd even started Kitsis.com yet, right? So there was no oh, yeah, when, when when was this? When was uh, this? Two thousand three, you know, right? Oh there. yeah, no, I yeah, uh, Kitsis. Com didn't launch till 2008. So, yeah. yeah. So, imagine the world there. before that. We relied heavily on print magazines. There'd be little tiny um, ads in the back. And I remember there was one, I don't remember the guy's name, but he ran a little ad and it would say, like, you know, start an RIA $450 or something mm-hmm. like that. Call call Bob or whatever his name uh-huh. was. Right? And, and so, like, that's how the journey started. And, um, and, you know, I feel like that I've spent now most of my adult life just trying to solve those same problems I observed, you know, over 20 years ago. So what was the so what was the thing that you built first? So you you had this. Uh, it turned out there's a bunch of folks approaching retirement who have questions and will pay you a little something on the internet for information, but they actually would pay you a lot more just to do it for them. Mm-hmm. So you start finding your way to the RA model because that's literally how you get paid to do it for them. Like welcome to portfolio management with discretion. Yep. So, 
so so like what did you actually do or create or, or, or build at that point like what came next yeah, so, so that was when I started my first RIA. Uh, it was called Retirement Wealth. And kind of the reason I went after that market then, and it wasn't as common. You know, Obviously, there's a lot of people that do retirement-focused work today, but 20 years ago, there were very few. Um, but I did it because of the information I learned from doing the, you know, sort of like self, um, you know, directed 401k, you know, just a, sort of like a subscription platform. Again, most of the people who were into that service, they were um, you know, people getting ready for retirement or in retirement. So, uh, so I thought, well, Hey, like this, you know, you did a little bit of research, right. And of course the demographics at that time sort of said, Hey, listen, there's going to be this huge wave of baby boomers yeah. that are preparing for. And I thought, gosh, for the next 20 plus years, this is going to be a really good space to be in. So I'm going to really focus on that, you know, retirement, you know, kind of client base. Um, and, uh, and so retirement wealth was born. Uh, it was a state registered RIA, um, just me. So just a solo operator. And, uh, fortunately I had, uh, I'd learned a lot about online marketing. So it, it sounds crazy thinking about it, but like performance marketing before it was such a thing, like, you know, pay-per-click back then, um, yep. a fair bit about that. Um, eventually you know, it took a couple of years, but eventually started blogging and, you know, built a fairly, um, you know, fairly useful blog that would help with the client traction. Um, and some of the cool learnings, I guess, that like I would say, like fast forward to today, like, um, you know, I, I remember having to get a custodian. Right? That's like one of the first things I was like, well, if I'm going to help these people with their money, I've got to like, I've got to have a place to open these accounts. And this might sound so silly to people today that like, because maybe today it seems easy, you know, because there's, you know, obviously like websites like yours that have tons of information. There's membership organizations like XYPN and others, right? That, that, you know, kind of like uh, bring people together to yeah, help back, them. Back then, like you're nothing. wandering in the wilderness. I mean, you're literally, yeah. uh, you're literally getting the magazines to look at the ads because it's the only way you can figure out who actually has a solution to do this. Yeah. And I remember calling the state of Michigan and like asking for their help filling out the actual, you know, sort of like application. And, you know, it's like, it, it just was a very different world nonetheless. But, um, but in that process, I remember I met um, another advisor in Michigan who had an RIA and he was willing to kind of share a little bit. And he's like, Hey, listen, here's what I would recommend, you know, call Charles Schwab and, um, you know, call TD Waterhouse is what they were called back then. And, um, you know, and you need to get, you need to, you need to find yourself a custodian. That's one of the most important, important things you're going to need to have, you know? So, um, you know, of course I had no clients, no assets, no experience, right. like, you know, um, like I, I, you know, I didn't have much to offer the custodians, but unfortunately um, back then TD Waterhouse was willing to take, take me on. So, um, jumped on the platform after I got my RA set up and, you know, I had to learn a few things on how to run it. But, um, I remember one of the first things, you know, that really sticks out in my mind. Cause like it, it really helped shape, you know, kind of the, the way I thought about the next 20 years was I, um, I wanted to open my first account. You know, I was going to just open one for myself and I wanted to learn like how to trade and you know how to bill, like how to collect revenue. And, and I remember asking my sales rep, like, okay, so, you know, how do I do those things? And it was like, oh, well, we don't do most of those things. Like, wait a minute. I thought you guys were the most important part of my, you know, like helping me run this business. Well, no, no, we have an affinity center and you go to the affinity center and you can find, you know, like, um, you know, software partners, if you want to be able to do financial planning. And if you want to be able to do, um, you know, a little bit more sophisticated trading, if you want to be able to do, you know, fee billing. And I thought like, I remember just like even saying them like, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. You want me to, you want me to go buy software. You already have all the data. You know exactly what the value of every account is every day. You can reconcile every single position. You're generating statements already. 
but you want to generate, and again, keep in mind, I had a software background, so I knew what these things were. They were mentioning, yeah. you want me to generate a flat file, <laughs> upload it via SFTP to a third-party software company. It's going to be not exactly the same format as what you're displaying. So they're yeah. going to have to reconcile, reconcile. <laughs> you know, all the transactions and corporate actions and values. And once I started using some of these software companies, like I'd say they, the, the efficacy was very low. <laughs> like they, these were, they were a lot of inaccuracies, but you're going to want me to use that system to then calculate the fee to then generate another file that I then upload to your system some number of days later when the data is not even relevant anymore. Like there could have been a cash withdrawal, like if someone had like a monthly distribution, right? So but I'm like, that is the craziest thing I've ever And they're like, well, that's just the way it's done. You know, yeah. and and like that's just like seared into my memory, you know, like that that was the way it was done. It made no sense. And, and so yeah, I learned a lot. I, I mean, I built a pretty successful firm, um, but I remember like, you know, I also got my, you know, sort of like my first taste of, you know, how inefficient, you know, the um, yeah. the business was well, because of like these these things not being integrated. It was all, yeah. all deep well, and fragmented. But that's how I got started. And, and yeah, I mean, I obviously have to go deep into the retirement wealth years. But, you know, yeah. what I say is that it was a really cool learning experience because, um, you know, I got to be an advisor. Uh, I got to be a financial advisor, financial planner and work with clients and kind of learn even like what the consumer perspective was of our industry and super valuable kind of series of years. I probably spent about five years, you know, kind of as a practicing planner and it was super, um, super uh, helpful. So how did it build and grow? I mean, like what kind of traction did you find with this novel concept of like doing financial planning focused on baby boomer retirees? I'm like, I'm I'm not saying that tongue in cheek, like that really was a new thing then, right? The whole baby boomer wave of whatever is like 10,000 baby boomers reaching age 62 and, 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 uh, starting social security, like that hadn't begun yet. That hit in 2008. Like you, you were ahead of that curve. Yeah, of course in in the time I'll tell you, like it, it was hard as hell, of course. Um, you know, it's how it felt, you know, but, um, but it was very successful very quickly, you know? So, um, and some of that was like, you know, I, I worked, I worked really hard um, and probably got a little bit lucky and, and, and for sure got lucky, I guess I should say. Um, but uh, I remember the first year was a bit slow moving because I just didn't have any idea what I was doing. I, I had no um, I had no interpersonal skills like really whatsoever. Um, I was really more of like a technical person and and uh, didn't understand uh, the sort of emotive drivers of how people make decisions. And um but, you know, I just took it upon myself, like, hey, I'm going to learn everything I could. I, I read every book you could possibly read. I read every industry magazine cover to cover 10 times over, you know, to try to learn. And, um, you know, by the second year, I'd found a really good rhythm. Um, I, I grew my business really two ways. I did seminars, you know, like I hosted some like educational seminars. Um, and then I used my blog. And um, in the first, I'd say two to three years, I got a lot more business from seminars um, by like years three and four, probably the blog overtook that. And by year, you know, five, I mean, it was, I was hundred percent virtual doing all business through my blog. And that was like, you know, keep in mind, that would have been like 2008 or nine or thereabouts, like, which is way earlier than most would have probably been. Yeah. Doing that. Um, yeah, it took me about four years to get to hundred million of assets under management. And then, um, you know, then from there very quickly got to 200 and from there very quickly to 300 and, um, and so I would say, and, and you know, and, and I always I don't try to tell people that the youngsters nowadays that, um, you know, mind you, that was so long ago that adjusted for inflation, that's a lot more, <laughs> you know, than, than what it is today. Uh, and also learned, you know, that was an era where I, I first started hiring people. So I learned a little bit about like, you know, 
hiring, both, uh, you know, good and bad experiences, right. That shaped like, you know, that the, some of the things that now, you know, now I realize just how important they are, but then I, you know, I didn't have any experience. So you're just kind of like, you know, learning as you go. So what, um, yeah. what were the like, you know, learnings failing, you know, I, I wish I, I wish I'd known then what I know now about <laughs> hiring and building team. Yeah, I think, um, so, so I think the mistake I made, which I think, um, uh, I suspect, I, I, I see a lot of, uh, you know, planners and advisors make the same mistake is they, one, they don't have like a great hiring process, right? It's more like, oh yeah, I need some help. And then it's like, you get referred to, you know, whatever your neighbor's cousin who, you know, whatever used to be a bank teller or something. And you do one interview and you hire them on the spot, right? Which is, uh, that's right. not pretty cool. You know, maybe, maybe you found the needle in the haystack, but you know, probably you didn't. Um, so there's not like much of a process for people to build, um, you know, really good talent around them. And then I think, uh, even identifying and understanding what great talent looks like is also a bit of a misnomer. I think that, the you know, people are more solving for what they can afford. Uh, so it'll be like, well, I think I can afford someone and pay them, you know, $15 an hour for, you know, 30 hours a week. And so, you know, they, they, they go out and they acquire that level of talent. Um, and, you know, uh, and then they get that level of result, right? Like they, you know, it's, it's, it's rare that you're going to get someone who, who essentially fights way above their weight. Right. And, and, um, and so I think like, you know, yeah, if I look at like hiring now, um, like I wouldn't be, I certainly wouldn't get hired at my own company today. Like I just, I'm not nearly remarkable enough, you know, and maybe that's probably the way it should be. I, but, um, but I'll say is that like, you know, um, uh, I remember, um, you know, and for all the faults he has probably uh, today, there, you know, the, the um, radio uh, host, Dave Ramsey, he has this one saying that I, I, I still like it just because I, I think it's like, it's, it's, uh, it's short and sweet and makes sense. But he says, you know, in order to live like no one else, you have to live like no one else. And I remember hearing that in like, mm-hmm. in the early part of my career. And I would say, I'm, I'm trying to build something that's, you know, going to be really impactful. Like, I, I really want this to be something that's really meaningful and impactful. And I'm willing to live like no one else. And, and by, and, and really what that means for those who are like, can't quite, you know, comprehend the simplicity of it is like, I'm willing to live incredibly, um, you know, austere. Like I, I'm, I'm going to live in like the cheapest apartment, drive the crappiest car, pay myself mm-hmm. nothing, work harder than anybody I know to the point that people might think it's actually unhealthy, the level of work I'm willing to put into this, uh, because I know the payoff if I do this for the next two, three, four years like not, not just personally, but like the impact will be like, you know, this massive, huge multiple relative to the work that went into it. Um, so, so that, that much shaped like those early years for me. And, you know, I think like helped that business become quite, uh, you know, quite successful for the era anyway. So what ultimately happened with retirement wealth? Yeah. So, I mean, um, you know, the, uh, maybe this will be thematic here, but like, um, you know, so my growth was, was quite high in, in that the sales, uh, people at TD Ameritrade, uh, noticed it, right. Cause they saw the assets growing, growing really quickly. I had, you know, a few years in a row where I was you know, adding a lot of assets every month, um, very consistently. And, uh, one of the things that of course they wanted to say, Hey, how are you, how are you doing this? Like, you know, did you buy a business? Did you do this, this? It's like, no, no, I'm doing this through, through my blog. It's actually, now it's like, everything comes from my blog, like just tons of business from my blog, you know? And, um, and then people look at my blog and it was like this ugly old simple blog, right? There's nothing fancy about it. Um, and, uh, but, but there was like one thing I did really, really well. I very much stumbled into it being a fairly technical person. Most of my clients were quite technical, right? So I, I worked with a lot of engineers, um, you know, college professors, um, you know, academics and, you know, and, uh, or, or just like generally people that, that were, um, 
uh, you know, had sort of an engineer uh, type of a mindset, uh, CPAs, things like that, right? So suddenly this one really brilliant um, um, rocket scientist that was a client of mine, uh, he, he'd went to a seminar um, and uh, yeah, he sent me an email, basically. The email said, Jason, I know I shouldn't have, but I went to a seminar and I know I shouldn't have, but I agreed to meet with the person that presented and they were trying to sell me this very specific, he gave, gave me the brand, like the name of the carrier, but a, a fixed index annuity. And they, and he shared like, you know, here's all the things that he, he told me it would do for me and why I should have it. And um, I went to the internet and looked around, I couldn't find anything on this annuity. And so, you know, I'm asking you, like, is this something you think I should do with my money? And, um, and I thought to myself, like, this is a, this is genuinely one of the smartest people I know. He was, he was one of like those clients that like, you know, you love to have, but like also they really challenge you. Like he really mm-hmm. challenged me a lot to be really exceptional and I am very grateful for him. Um, and, um, and so I, I started working on my response and I knew knowing this client, I knew I had to be really diligent. I had to do my homework. Right. So I built an entire, you know, spreadsheet that broke down yeah. how to calculate all the internal rates of return of the various kind of structures of this FIA and its crediting methods and it's, you know, guaranteed lifetime withdrawal benefit rider and, you know, built these, you know, toggles so he could very quickly like, you know, choose an age, you know, and it would like automatically calculate, um, you know, kind of like the IRR. Um, so like, Hey, if I bought it at this age, so it can come at that age and so forth. Right. And, and, um, and then I started like penning and, and, and of course I had to, to source it, it literally was just like, basically it was like a Kitsis article basically. Right. I'd like source everything doc. It was like really well done, I would say. Um, and then before I hit send to him, I thought, gosh, if this guy couldn't figure out how this product worked, mm. the other people who are in the same boat. Uh-huh. And so I asked him for his permission. Hey, do you mind if I share this on my blog? I'll remove, you know, anything that would tie it to you whatsoever. And he said, no, I think that would be great. And I published it and I, it legitimately changed my entire life. Like, I mean, that was such a life-changing post um, because it, it really, it allowed me to give up on having to do any type of like seminars or things like that. <laughs> I never had to see a client face-to-face ever again the rest of my life. I could do everything. Because the more the companies pitch the growth of fixed index annuities, the more people Google search, the more engineers Google searched online, found your engineer oriented post and said, oh, this is clearly the person I have to work with. Yeah. And and, and it's really interesting. Like it made my pool the whole country. So even though like, um, I I suspect you probably have the same thing thing happens to you. Like like, uh, my style probably turned a lot, most people off. Because I was mm-hmm. too detail oriented, my the video I recorded an hour long video breaking down all the mathematics of how this product worked, right? And then wrote like this who knows how many thousands of words, you know, kind of like yeah. whatever uh, essay on it. Um, but those who did appreciate it, boy, were they really into me? Like I would have people be like, you know, I feel like we're kindred spirits. It'd be like someone who was like a you know, 70 year old, um, you know, whatever engineer at Boeing or something like that, and I was like a 20 eight-year-old, you know, and they'd be like, I feel like we're the same and we think, see the world the same. And anyway, it was very, very lovely and endearing, but TD noticed the growth and I kind of shared that. So I did it. And so they invited me to, to go to San Diego and to speak at, I, I think it wasn't called Link back then. I, I forget what it was called, but basically their national conference, um, probably like around 2010 or thereabouts. Um, and uh, and so, anyway, so I went out there and I just, and, I, and I'd never spoken uh, really much to advisors at that point. Like I, I, I was a very unknown person, right? Like even though I was young and I, I don't know too many people in their twenties that built a firm the size that, that mine was, yeah. uh, I'd never been in like, uh, you know, any magazines or on any industry award things because I, I very much kept to myself. Um, and, um, but anyway, I, I presented there, um, and 
lots of advisors were there, of course. They were very curious how someone was using the internet. This was before Josh Brown and before anybody really was like, you know, it's making Yeah, yeah. No no anything, one had no uh, one had traction in the blogging realm yet. And I'm curious, was it like were you then writing like, you know, like takedown analyses of a whole bunch of different products? Or was it sort of like like you wrote the one article about the one product and like that was enough and off it went? Well, so what it, what it what it did for me was it got me thinking like um, you know, this is pretty pretty pragmatic and obvious, right? But I would say that um, yeah, like uh, then I, I said, well, gosh, this is just one random annuity. Um, you know, let me do some research and find out what the top ten selling annuities are, uh, fixed index annuities are, and I did the same thing for for them. And then I thought, well, gosh, the same thing might might be happening with variable annuities. Let me find out what the top handful of variable annuities are. I'll write about those too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so quickly, my blog became essentially you know like. Um, you know, known for annuity reviews as the first person to ever do it. Um, and same, I had a YouTube channel, first person to ever publish long form reviews. Like these were long form reviews, you know, but, um, and, and, you know, and it didn't, interestingly, it didn't necessarily have to drive a ton of traffic, um, because it was so like, well, uh, like, like they were such well fit prospective clients, um, that, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I'd probably get about a hundred inquiries a month of people, and the inquiries were very interesting. They'd be like, you know, they'd send a thing on the contact form. It'd be like, Jason, I just sold my business. Uh, I have seven million dollars. I've never um, worked with a financial planner before because I've always uh-huh. been, you know, self-employed. I went to, I, I interviewed seven people. They all said different things. A bunch of them were trying to sell me these annuities. I found your blog. Can you please help me? Uh huh. I mean, what a strange thing, like considering most advisors really struggle to get clients. And all of a sudden I had people like asking for my help and telling me all about their life and their challenges. And um, Mm -hmm. so um, when I did the presentation at TD, like one of the things that happened was lots of other advisors started reaching out. Hey, how do I plug into what you're doing? And what I was doing, by the way, like it wasn't just like the annuity reviews. Like I also had, you know, uh, built my own sort of like, um, you know, client onboarding process where I was assessing the risk and building their plans. I developed sort of a proprietary financial planning process. I was charging fee for service probably well before a lot of people were, um, you know, cause I charged for every financial plan I did. I didn't believe in doing free financial plans. Um, and, um, and, uh, um, and then even I had a very algorithmic way of managing money. Like I just, again, my whole, like I, I ironically, I think it's because I actually lack the self-confidence to believe like somehow I'm smart enough to beat the market. So I just felt like I don't want to trust any decision I could ever make. Let me just entirely build you know, formulas to help dictate how assets should be allocated, how they should be tax allocated, how they should be, you know, traded, et cetera. Right. So, so my process was pretty simple. Um, you know, uh, uh, get clients mostly from the internet and then have a very replicable process for onboarding them through planning and then eventually to becoming like long-term like kind of wealth management clients. And, and, and basically a light bulb went off. I mean, advisors started asking, Hey, how do I do, how can I do that too? And that's what led me to my next company, which was uh, eventually, you know, started in 2011, um, started writing the code for it in 2011, launched it in 2012. It's called the Formula Folios. Um, and basically, I didn't really know it at the time. I didn't know what a TAMP was, but you know, I just saw myself like, hey, there should be a platform that advisors can plug into and it helps them with the two things they struggle with a lot. You know, One is getting in front of new clients and the second is helping them onboard those clients in an efficient manner. Um, and, uh, and so I started a TAMP, you know, uh, retirement wealth still, um, you know, existed. Like I stepped down, uh, you know, um, offloaded clients, you know, to some of the others that worked for me, sold, sold some piece of my book of business. Um, and even the entire firm just, I didn't have an operating position really there for, for quite some years. Um, but I, I maintained a meaningful owner position in it, uh, for, for quite a few years and it, and it kept growing and growing and eventually became a, a billion dollar plus, um, you know, RIA. Very cool. 
very cool. And so when you shifted then the formula folios, I guess same theme, like building systematized portfolios, uh, have a marketing system to bring people in and make the onboarding easier. But the distinction is now you are actually starting to build build software and code because it sounds like retirement wealth ultimately you you had a process, but this was mostly I'll just I'll call it like traditional planning do the work. Formula folios was it sounds like more more of a technology offering or like binding value proposition. I mean, definitely more, but like, yeah, I built my own proposal system that did a whole bunch of like really cool things that became actually the, the initial kind of code base for formula folios, but definitely formula folios was much more of a platform business. It's so, you know, at our peak, we had a little North of 30 engineers and about 110 total employees. And, and we were very much building, you know, sort of a technology, you know, sort of product um, and, and product, not meaning like financial product, but product meaning like, you know, software product first company. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but like, essentially what I was building was like, uh, you know, I'd call it middleware today where it's like, you know, we still sat on top of the traditional custodians, but we kind of sat between the custodian and the advisor right. and provided a lot of those like middle office back office solutions. Um, and we tried to codify as much of it as we possibly could. Um, are, there are some limitations of course, but, but, um, but, but you, yeah. you can, you can only automate as much as the underlying custodial platform automates 100%, in the first place. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. So then how did the formula folios business grow and evolve? Like you, you, I, I take it like you, you were, you were getting advisors who are reaching out through the TDA presentation to say, Hey, I'd love to plug in more of what you do. So you said, okay, I'm just going to make a new business that literally just focuses on plugging advisors in. And so I'm shifting from an advisory business to a platform for advisors business. Huh. Like yeah, how, so, how did that actually grow and evolve? Yeah, the, the, the first advisors, I mean, yeah, they largely came from, well, they came from two sources. Um, so after I gave that presentation, there was a, a, a magazine article. Uh, I can't remember which magazine it was, but one, one of the industry magazines. And, um, and, it, and, it, and it was, the, the title was The Advisor's Tech Edge. And you and I were both on it. And it was like sure. about like these young up and comers using tech, you know, right, to grow their businesses. And um, I think maybe, maybe Bill Winterberg, I, I think was on it. Um, but so some people read about me, right? And that was much more broad than just the TD audience. And there was like the folks from that TD audience as well. Um, and then there was a couple articles written about my presentation at the, the TD conference. Um, you know, and this was like an early, you know, 2010, 11 or in that neighborhood. Um, and so, so yeah, so, so like that was like the first group of advisors that were kind of like the early adopters, if you will, or like the innovators, I guess, if you're looking at like, you know, like an adoption, um, you know, kind of bell curve. Right. Um, and, and, um, and so, yeah, like we, I was able to kind of zoom out pretty quickly, get the first hundred, 150 million of assets sort of on the platform. I mean, as a TAMP, we charged a percentage on assets. And so, you know, I was able to like, you know, and, and I, I was able to work for free and, uh, and fund it pr privately because I'd built, you know, the retirement wealth business reasonably large. And, um, and so I had, you know, good cash flow from that. Um, so you then, were, you were effectively able to use the, the profits from retirement wealth to fund the, the build and the initial hiring at formula folios. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and this is, again, this is another great example of the, like, you know, um, you know, live like no one else. Right. So like, even though retirement wealth was quite successful, um, I never really 
spent a lot of that money. Like I just would invest it back in the business, invest it back in the business, you know, hire people. Um, I, I always put myself on a salary. I learned to live within the confines of that salary versus like taking big distributions, profit distributions, you know? So, you know, by the time I was building, um, you know, formula folios, I probably had, you know, I don't know, a million dollars in cash, you know, um, that I just never spent, right. Like after tax money, just like sitting there. Um, so, so it wasn't like incredibly hard to fund, you know, sort of another venture, um, and again, a good lesson for any young aspiring, you know, like entrepreneurs, um, don't spend all your money, <laughs> you know, like um, save it, live to learn pretty meagerly, like, and, and it'll, like, you'll have way more opportunities, you know, if you want to do bigger things. But, but yeah, so that's kind of how it started. Um, and then, uh, you know, the, the, the process was pretty straightforward. You know, I, I um, uh, you know, I, I, I end up getting pretty good at go to market strategy. So, um, you know, marketing to advisors became like something I really tried to, get much better at so we could build a kind of a, you know, a pretty replicable sort of flywheel of, of like a great product, but like also great pipeline. Um, and the business grew again, again, it wasn't easy. It all sounds easy when I like tell it in hindsight, but I'm here to tell you, like, it was like, you know, a lot of long days, a lot of heartache, a lot of staff turnover, because I didn't know what the hell I was doing when it came to like, you know, hiring and managing and nurturing, you know, people, um, you know, but, but in the end, you know, from when I launched it in 2012, I'm, you know, I think we probably hit a billion in assets by 2014 and, you know, 2 billion probably by 2015 or 16. And, you know, by the time I, uh, ultimately stepped down from running the company, we were just under 4 billion in 2018. Um, so it was a pretty rapid growing business. Um, and, you know, but based on a very simple, um, you know, value proposition, you know, our marketing message was we help advisors that have five to $10 million in assets, 10 X their business. Like that was it. Like that was the value prop. How do we do it? Oh, well, we have like marketing systems that are you know digital in nature to get in front of more of your ideal clients. And we have, you know, business automation on the back end to help you onboard successfully, you know, onboard uh, those clients. Um, you know, right. And that was the business. So, um, it, evidently, you know, what, what I learned over the years is that, that most financial advisors, many of them anyway, um, and this isn't, by the way, a knock on, on advisors by any stretch, but um, is that they either would like to make more money, work less hours, or both. Um, and in, in many times, for very good reasons. I'd like to earn more money so I can give more away, or I'd like to work less hours so I can spend more time with my family, right? But like, so that was, I built the whole business around that. And, 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 and you know, ultimately, like, uh, I'm very proud of, like, of course, the work we did there, but I, I did start having a lot of, I started having a lot of, um, you know, sort of paranoia in the last couple of years that I felt like the fees were going to become impossible to justify. Um, and no matter what I did, no matter how much software I built and no matter how six Sigma I tried to get around efficiency, like the operating costs of running a TAMP, like you just cannot compress them. I could not envision a world where I could reach a sufficient scale that those fees would be worth advisors paying for. It was my opinion. Of course, I was very paranoid well, about it. What, what were you charging at the time? Like, what was the TAMP um, I mean, it was cost? variable based on account sizes and advisor assets, but, you know, we, we probably across the board averaged around a half a percent. Um, and, I, and in my head, I felt like it, a, a TAMP shouldn't probably be more than like 15 basis points, 20 maybe at the most. Um, but of course, like our, our operating expenses were, were like in the neighborhood of like, you know, probably... 30, <laughs> you know, so I was looking at this and going, even if I stripped out my R and D, I could maybe get it down to 20, you know, well, I was going to say like your, your, all those pesky engineers do, do, do add a wee, a wee bit of cost as you keep building systems. But yeah, if, but even, even if getting your R and D build stuff out, 
only gets you down to 20, you kind of have a problem. <laughs> yeah. Listen, I mean, it, it like, again, like it, this was like, you know, actually I like to solve like hard math problems. So this was a math problem that I, I, I basically conceded to that like this is and i didn't feel like it was like i i was it was urgent like i was like okay i could probably get away like doing this for like another decade or more and i could probably make more money than i could spend in 10 lifetimes and i could sell this business and make hundreds of millions of dollars like i was well aware of all of those things so for me like the the um as soon as i conceded that like i was not going to be able to solve the problems i wanted to solve uh then is i should no longer work on this business like that was basically what it boiled down to and the business is still around it you know sold to a private equity firm and it's you know been since rebranded it's a successful you know eight and a half billion dollar uh firm today and growing growing presumably quite nicely um but um but part of the challenge by the way like on the on the margins anyway like you know um is that um probably my biggest expenses if i again if i stripped out all of the rd like my biggest expenses actually were um essentially supporting the custodians it, it, meaning like you know we had a rather large cashiering team because once you reach scale like what advisors will accept as small problems because they don't have a large client base when you have a big firm these small problems are very obvious right so like support 50,000 accounts and, you know, just think about managing RMDs and, you know, qualified charitable contributions from IRAs, or think about all the people who have monthly contributions or distributions. Um, think about all the people that have one-off needs for 50, 50 grand here, or 20 grand there, all the checks that you get deposited and how all that impacts how you, how you try to manage, uh, you know, the, the sort of cash balances inside of client accounts while still keeping low, generally low cash balances. So they don't, create cash drag, right. which was especially important when rates were zero percent, you know, like, it, like, it, like it, it kind of became this like problem, like there, there was no off the shelf or software we could build that was going to make those problems go away because the the bulk of the challenge is actually at the custodial layer, the infrastructure layer of our industry. And there was no middleware you could buy uh, or that I was aware of or that I could build that was going to fix that. Um, and the same became true of like, even opening accounts, we were opening a hundred plus accounts a day. And you think about like the mathematics behind that. And it's like, okay, well, if it takes four weeks or thereabouts to get the account properly, fully funded. Um, so you're looking at 2021 business days or, or in that neighborhood. Right. And like, if you have a 10% NIGO rate, you can start backing this math on you go, wow, like we're sitting on 350 to 400 accounts in some state <laughs> of disarray at all times. Right. That number's only ever growing. Only as growing as you scale. Yep. Right. It, like, like, so, so you can imagine like, this is where like, I was like, okay, like we can't, we can't operationalize our way. We can't codify our way out of these problems. And, you know, look, as long as the rest of the industry was okay, paying, like paying more than they should for these services, these, these services to be sort of like outsourced, then, you know, we weren't, an un, we had no competitive pressure necessarily. Right. But like, I looked at the world and thought, what would happen if we could give advisors and their clients back those 20 or 30 extra basis points. Um, I mean, heck, what if we could give them all of them back? What if we could not only give them all of them back, but we could actually do it way better? You know, like we could actually get accounts open faster, like lower rejection rate, like high degrees of automation around like cash management. You know, again, at scale, again, it might not for the average advisor that maybe has whatever 50 to 150 households. Maybe they don't believe it's like a huge deal. But for me at that moment in time, man, did I feel like this could be really, really important. Um, and that's the problem I want to solve. Right. And that's kind of how, why I stepped down and, and eventually started, started altruist. And so that, that was kind of directly the genesis was I'm seeing these scaling issues at formula folios. I can do the math of how they're going to compound as we, 
as we keep growing and even with a software engineering background, I can see I'm, I'm literally not able to solve this at the middleware layer because the underlying custodial platforms just don't, don't put enough out there to make it possible to solve. If it's going to get solved, I actually have to build the custodial layer. Correct, so, off, yeah. so off we go. It, it, well, and I think like for me, um, I, I should give credit where, where it's due. Like the the hair that broke the camel's back for me was watching Robinhood, um, you know, like launch and grow. Because you know, I, I remember like I remember seeing the robo advisors, but being generally like, okay, like this isn't that disruptive in my opinion. Like I, I kind of, yeah, I remember I started you know formula flows like around the same time of like the robo kind of revolution, and I remember like looking at it and being like, I knew unit economics really well. And I was like, these things are going to be a disaster. They'll never scale. They'll take them, their payback period will be way too long. Like, that's why I, I always, I've always lived in B2B for the most part, the last like 12, 14 years. Cause I'm like, that's why I left retirement well. But when I saw Robinhood, I was like, wow, like this is remarkable. Like, they, you can now open an account on your phone, um, put money in the account, trade the account in fractional shares with full. Um, autonomy and how you decide to do it. You're not being like pegged into one of seven model portfolios. It's commission free. Um, it's like elegant. It's fast. Um, you know, no minimums. And we as advisors are being told to use uh, digital e-signatures, which are still ultimately at many custodians, they're they're literally printed off after they're received, and then they're processed. They're rekeyed in yeah, manually I, after they're printed. It, it hasn't evolved a lot since then, <laughs> for what it's worth, right? Because like if if like I think even the major player incumbents, like they they know the future is actual is fully straight through digital processing. So why would they? Yeah, I mean, everybody gets in, where it's yeah, going. So, so investing in something in between here and there doesn't make a ton of sense, and so that's why like it's not actually evolved a whole lot since then and and many of the major players are still quite a ways away from like full digitization of not just account opening but all the servicing related to it and you know um you know td had probably the the best uh you know uh open api network i had a large firm now and and so i i had access to you know sort of like whatever the um I say generally higher ups, you know, at most of the major custodians and and even some of the big, you know, kind of tech vendors in our space. And and I just felt like, okay, I could do that and, you know, give feedback and and uh and offer advice and encouragement, right? Um, but in the couple of years that I was doing that, uh nothing happened, right? The 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 pace of change was like, you know, watching paint dry. Right. Um it, it was just like I couldn't I couldn't bear it any longer. And, I, and and so like, you know, we all have our breaking point. Again, like that 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 breaking point to me was like, okay, like if I don't build this myself, I'm not sure how long I'm going to wait for someone else to build it. Um and uh and so yeah, you know, I, I'd say like um a pretty pretty important moment, but you know, and a lot has obviously changed since then. It's been four and a half years or so um, you know, since I uh, uh resigned from from Formula Folios. But um uh, but a lot has not, a lot has stayed the same, <laughs> you know? So yeah, yeah, maybe commissions have gone away and there's been a, like a tiny bit of like technical innovation. Like, I mean, for the most part, the business is not a whole lot different than it was in 2018. And it wasn't, it's not a whole lot different than it was like in 2008, you know? So, right. I mean, like, you know, like in 15 years, there's really not been a whole lot. Cause like we, we could use DocuSign in 2010, you know, like at, at TDA, like, so, so yeah, so it's pretty pretty slow moving again i think again we all know where things are going but it's like how, how long are people willing to wait to get there i, I my patience obviously wasn't quite uh, i wasn't willing to wait another decade so and so that's the that's the genesis and launch of altruist yeah i mean i think there's um 
uh, it, like it'd been brewing, you know, for a couple of years. Um, I'd even kicked around, like I did a full integration with um, Apex Clearing when I was at Formula Folio. So we we had an idea of like what could be done if you had engineering uh, firepower. But but I'll also say that like you know if if someone didn't have and this is at the time I don't I, I couldn't tell you what it would take today, but at the time you know it probably took you know I'd say eight to ten people. Um, six to nine months, um, and we say eight to ten people, meaning like you know, half dozen engineers, a product designer, product manager, um, you know, and it took us you know, again, I'll call it six to nine months just to get like an MVP of like a digital platform for advisors, kind of up and running, um, you know, and, and so whatever that cost was to me, I mean, it was presumably a couple million dollars, but like that's like also what said to me was like. Well, um, if that's what it takes, then uh, almost no one's ever going to do this. <laughs> like, no one's ever going to build their own digital platform. Mm-hmm. So we're all going to be sitting around waiting for it to be built. Um, but I learned enough about building that that I was like, I think I can do this. I can build the whole thing, the full stack. Because um, at that point, I already built like performance reporting software. I'd built you know proposal software, asset location software, trade order management software. Like we built a lot of the stack, you know, the middle office stack, if you will, at Formula Flows. And I'd also then built this sort of like front end onboarding experience. Um, both we built one for TDs and their APIs. We built this like more elegant digital version through Apex. So, you know, I, 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 I when I think about like, yeah, like the launching, I make it sound like, oh, it was like one day the hair broke down, but it's like, actually it was like, you know, there's a number of years kind of leading up to like this. And then again, there was sort of this crescendo, I guess, where, which, which led to the starting. Um, and, and fortunately, you know, I think um, clearly I wasn't alone because it's been a pretty, um, you know, like once I made the decision, um, others clearly, I think others clearly um, were not totally happy with the status quo either, as evidenced by like, you know, we have a lot of advisors now that use the platform. So, so help us understand just altruist and the the platform and offering that as it exists today for what I suspect are still a, a number of listeners who aren't really familiar with what it is or what you do or what the capabilities are beyond like maybe, maybe they've heard the name at some point. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think so, so happy to, um, uh, first I'm going to, I'm going to audible and, and like, uh, back up just a tiny bit too, to like, um, uh, when I was doing my research on building a custodian, um, uh, I was shocked how little I knew about custodians. Um, you know, like I, I, I had like a general idea, but like, there's things we hear about, you know, if we're in this business long enough, you hear certain things and like, maybe if you hear them so often, you accept them to be truths. And, um, and so some of those, like, I'd say like things we've learned to accept as truths, you know, it's like, um, custody requires massive scale, right? It's a super low margin business. They don't make any money. Right. In fact, if someone's run a big enough RIA for a while, you've undoubtedly had a conversation. I've had these when I was running my RIA, where the custodian actually comes to you and says, I don't make enough money off your business and you need to change either your cash sweep vehicle or you need to use some of our proprietary funds or you need to do something because we're just not making enough money on your business. We might have to start charging you a platform fee. Um, those conversations happen all the time. Um, in fact, I'd say the bigger you are, the more likely they are to, to, to notice like the lack of their economics. And, and so then they want to put the pressure on the, the firm. Um, but if you really like look at how a custodian works. Like the thing that was always frustrating to me is I, I, I started looking at it and I, and like, you know, mind you, I was running a, a relatively large firm, but I thought it was like kind of crazy. If you were like a multi-billion dollar firm, um, you know, that probably meant that your custodian was making five to $10 million off you in gross, gross uh, revenue anyway. Um, and, and, and presumably like, you know, the bones that were public, you could see what their, you know, their, that their net operating uh, margins were, 
you know, typically 40% or thereabouts. They're, they're well-run businesses, you know? So like I could do the mental math and go, okay, uh, for a couple billion dollar RIA, you know, this firm's making a, a few million dollars off from, from my business, but they don't provide really anything, you know, for that. Meaning other than a big brand name and a, and st- a stable platform, which is very valuable. But like what I mean by I don't provide anything, like if I want to have like software to do certain things, um, I have to go pay for that, right? So if you happen to be multi-custodial and you want to be able to, do, you know, trade your accounts with, you mm-hmm. know, um, you know, ec- equitable trade allocation across both custodians, you need to have a multi-custodial trading platform that you have to pay for. Um, you know, if you want to have an elegant client portal, again, especially if you're multi-custodial, well, you're going to have to go pay for that. Maybe it's the same company, maybe it's not, depending on kind of how you're building your stack. Um you know, if you want to be able to do any type of advanced analytics or like if you're onboarding clients and you want to just integrate into their onboarding experience, you know, risk questionnaire, like that's a whole nother, you know, software vendor expense, you know, and it just, it, the whole thing seems so crazy to me that like, as I looked at the space, I was like, okay, we have a number of, you know, software companies that are pretty meaningful in our space. Um, but I mean, they are rounding errors to like the monthly revenue like their entire valuations, by the way, are like rounding errors to the monthly revenue of a of the big custodians, um, and and people. I didn't think people were like holding custodians accountable enough in terms of like what they should provide. In fact, I, I would say like I think if we had to do this all over again, like if if there was no if 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 like you know um, if if we erased all history and we started from just what we know today, like or what we know, I guess starting tomorrow, I don't know that people would accept that a custodian should just should do so little. Um, and you'd have to buy all this other stuff like to make them function. Um, and so when I started Altruist, I guess like that was like, th- these, were, these were like founding principles like that I understood like, okay, like the economics are such that like even in a zero interest rate environment, these custodians are generating 30 basis points or more, more on client assets, even if they're not charging anything for them. Um, before there were commissions and certainly when interest rates were a bit higher, they were making a lot more than that, right? They were presumably making you know, 50, 60, 70. In fact, the, in the early 2000s, they were making north of 100 basis points on advisor businesses, right? And still providing very, very little, if nothing at all, less than they do today, actually. Um, so, so in building, building altruists, like, yeah, the, the, the vision was sort of like this, um, like, hey, advisors shouldn't have to do all that stuff. So let's, let's try to actually build an, a, a vertically integrated solution, you know, which basically means let's not just provide clearing and custody, but like, let's also have like an elegant advisor portal. Um, you know, let's offer, if they want to use it, an elegant client portal in a mobile app. Let's integrate fee billing. So, you know, again, we have the data. They shouldn't have to do all this weird reconciliation, you know, kind of like rigmarole. Like they should just be able to tell us how they want to bill their clients if they're using, um, you know, fees that are debited from accounts. And this should just be done like with very little work. Um, and of course, like at, at the core, like the table stakes, it should be entirely digital. Like you should not have to fill out any paperwork for anything. An account should be able to be opened just as elegantly and fast as they can on like that Robinhood app, right? They should be funded just as fast. Like ACAT should be able to be done in days, um, not weeks. You know, um, ACH and Wire should be able to be funded same day. Um, like, so, so th- these are like the, the the general funding principles. And, and you know, in terms of like yeah, what we do today, it's pretty much all those things, right? Like we are a full self clearing custodian with a um, very elegant software layer that does a lot of like the key things a custodian should do. Now, now mind you, like we're not trying to boil the ocean, right? Like I don't think a custodian should necessarily be your financial planning software. And I don't think your custodian should necessarily be your CRM and a number of other tools. Um, those tools are also like already, I'd say, um, you know, pretty fairly priced. So, you know, they, they don't, they don't get out of control expensive as your firm grows, but a lot of those other services I mentioned that weren't vertically integrated, but probably should have been, 
were really expensive. Um, you know, like especially like I'd say like the two levels are really expensive. Like if you're a brand new firm, dropping ten or fifteen or twenty thousand on software is a really tough pill to swallow. And also if you're a really big firm, like again, my last company, even though we had a, all those engineers in house, we built all this software on our own, we were still spending probably in the neighborhood of two million dollars a year on uh, outside software. Um, and that just seemed kind of crazy to me. Because the model for a lot of those, and I mean, almost all the performance reporting platforms is some some version of a per account fee with a minimum. Correct. So the minimum means when you get launched, you still may have a historically like ten to $15,000 platform fee minimum for your, you know, Orion's, Black Diamonds, Tamaracks and the like. And and then the per account fee means like you don't you don't really outgrow that you get to a certain size and scale and it's basically still the same number, right? You get like a, an advisor who has a hundred client households with two to three accounts per household. Obviously sometimes more than that, but like mm-hmm. two, three accounts per household. You've got 250 to 300 plus accounts. You're paying $40 an account. It's like, well, there's 10 to $12,000. Like it's the, it's the same number and every advisor it's another ten to twelve thousand yeah. dollars per advisor. Well, and I think the other thing that that does, and it, and it really bothered me, um, was that like a minimum uh, charge per account, right? And 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 I've had this like, you know, I, I realize we're a long ways away from solving it, but it doesn't mean we should stop trying. Um, is the accessibility of advice and planning? Um, I know you've done a tremendous amount of work there, um, in in S as your your broader team, both your Kits's team and yep. your XYPN teams, um, you know, but. Uh, and um, yeah, I have some you know thoughts on like how we get there, but you know we're not, we're not there yet. But but I think like um, what a great way to tell people that you don't care about them financially um, than by saying like hey this household right like if I want to help uh, someone who has three accounts and if you're a small firm you're not getting forty bucks per account you're paying sixty seventy bucks per account so you're like okay um, the first two hundred dollars I don't even get right. but you know this person who only has you know um, you know thirty thousand dollars to start. Um, I'm gonna have to charge him 2% in order for me to make any money, or I'm gonna have to charge him a minimum financial planning fee of, you know, $2,000, you know, to like make it worth my hourly rate or something. And while none of those things are necessarily untrue, like those are, those are not crazy statements and and maybe they're not like totally off, uh, the, the value chain, if you will, but like, um, but gosh, it, it really sucks. And like, I really wish it wasn't that way, you know? And yeah. so, um, you know, there's a lot of work to kind of, to be done to get there. But uh, like, I, I felt like, again, like the custodians could have borne more of those responsibilities if they were built the right way. And, and part of why they weren't built that way is like, they were never built actually to, to provide custody for RIAs. Like these were platforms that were retro. They're all retail. I mean, yeah. every, every, every RIA platform in practice was either a consumer retail platform, like, like, Schwab and TD and Fidelity all all came up on on that side, or um, or they were primarily serving uh, independent broker dealers like Pershing, mm-hmm. and then all these things got retrofit to what would it look like to support a standalone RIA? Yeah, and and even to this day, right? You think about like how long the Investment Advisors Act has been around, and um, I wouldn't realize this when we were building our press release announcing our self clearing. We're like. Um, yeah, who are we joining? Who else? And we're like, oh, wait a minute. We're literally an N of one. We're the only uh, RIA only custodian. Like there's none, none other. Now there's a couple people who are like introducing broker dealers, but again, they actually clear through some other firm, but like right. the only actual full self-clearing RIA custodian in the entire country, which is like 
that makes no sense. <laughs> you know, like that shouldn't be the case. Um, but like that's it, it's important, I think, as a distinguishment because like um, that means like you know for a company like ours, of course, like every single feature we ever built was to serve RIAs. It's not like we're like, oh, hey, how do we retrofit that you know trading portal? you know, uh, so that advisors can use it too? Or how do we uh, modify our pricing so that it makes sense for advisors, right? Like, I think that always was like one of those weird things. I'd be like, why is it that my clients can get like, you know, all these features, they could open an account with a thousand bucks directly at, you know, whatever, insert name of discount broker. And like their, their tools are a billion times better and cheaper than if I serve them. Like, but again, these were like, they had to make these distinguishing kind of pricing differences because they had to make the economics work. Most people don't realize that like the way a custodian, most of them anyway, not all, but most of them, they do their pricing not on an advisor by advisor basis, right? So they actually look at it kind of holistically and they say, okay, well, uh, on the whole, you know, we, um, uh, you know, we know that we, it costs us, uh, you know, this fixed dollar amount to serve an advisor. Um, and they kind of forget that, like, it, so in other words, like they're not looking at it going, well, this advisor uses, you know, makes 75 phone calls a year and this advisor makes 7,500. They're just looking at it saying, this is the total cost to serve, like on average. And so we're going to then price it as such where we cannot lose money on anybody. And, but it, so it ends up getting this like weird, like kind of like, you know, well, they, tilt where the small firms get totally squeezed because they're yeah. being expected, they're being treated as though they have to produce as much revenue um, to, to meet the minimum cost structure of like the mean across the entire, you know, book of business, which well, isn't the real world, of course. While, while at the same time, the, the larger firms, I think like o- almost inevitably end out still being ludicrously more profitable oh, totally. for the, uh, for the, for the custodial platforms at the, at the end of the day. Cause just, you know, we, we, you know, the custody model, I mean, I mean, essentially lives in a world where it charges basis point pricing with no breakpoints. So, Be- because whatever you, what like, are. whatever it's- spread you make on cash or, or uh, all the other economic levers, like, whether it's a $10 million advisor or a $10 billion advisor, your spread on cash is the same. So if the firm's a thousand X bigger, you just make a thousand X more in, in, in profits from a, from a platform perspective. So like the, the big firms cross subsidize the small firms, the custodians then try to lift up the economics on the small firms. Then the big firms who have more systems and resources try to game the system a little bit more because they can actually spend the time to say like, yeah, I'm going to trade out of every single cash sweep every day because I can staff enough to that to get a little bit more yield into my client portfolio. Uh, and they start gaming the system. And then to me, basically, then the custodians start suffering on both ends because the small firms don't have good unit economics and the big firms are battening down their revenue. Yeah, no, it sounds like you you uh, you, you know how to game the system, you know, but um, uh, yeah, I, I think like it, this is maybe oversimplifying it, but I think advisors should understand some very, very simple math, right? Like, and this is like kind of I was getting to on like the, the, the power of vertical integration, you know, just keeping math simple. If, if someone had a hundred million dollars, like, I think you can safely assume at this very time, you know, it'll call it the, you know, um, in 2023, um, your custodian is making at least 40 basis points. Now, again, there's maybe exceptions to the rule. Maybe you're using all 
dimensional funds and you hold virtually no cash whatsoever and you never trade anything and you have no retirement accounts and no clients ever leave and close their account, right? Yeah, then maybe you're paying close to zero, right? But I'd say like on the average, it's probably around 40 basis points. What I think is like really interesting about that math is that on $100 million of client assets, that's $400,000 of revenue. And what I find really fascinating is that I would say that like, Every single other expense that advisor incurs in their business does not add up to $400,000. Meaning like, assume they have two employees, they have an office space, they have portfolio accounting software, trading software, you know, fee billing software, their members to have different. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if I'm a $100 million practice charging a proverbial 1%, like I have a million dollars of revenue, my overhead in total probably isn't 40%. It's, it's a little bit lower than that. And that's like staff and tech and rent and everything. Overhead still may not be 40%. Even if I'm paying full boats to all of my external technology vendors, I mean, I'm probably paying twenty to $40,000 in software costs. I mean, just like most most firms we find even from the benchmarking size we do are 2 to 4% of revenue in tech, maybe 5 or 6 if you're really tech savvy. So like maybe you're spending $50,000 on tech and the custodian's grossing 400. Yeah. I think this just speaks to like again like um uh, like the, the the size and scale of the custodians is just it's remarkable in comparison to everything else that is happening, right? So all the other decisions that someone's making like they just pale in comparison to like the revenue generating potential that the custodians have which yeah, obviously it makes for an interesting business to be in, but it also just tells you like, okay, don't believe all of those like things. Again, these these things that we accept as truths, um, like they're doing just fine, right? Um, like they're generating a lot of, and especially when rates are like, you know, something reasonable, like anything above two, 3% um, effective Fed funds rate, like, you know, it's a very, very good business for them to be in and they should absolutely be doing a lot more. But then I do have to ask from the 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 flip side, like, I mean, yes, custodians get a lot of a, a lot of revenue, but they have built a whole lot of tech. There is a whole lot of just they make things secure so I don't have to worry about their financials stability and such. And like, obviously, that has some cost to run and administer and do. I can't even imagine how many mind numbingly complex things they have to do to manage cybersecurity in the modern era. And they are staffing service centers. I mean, there are people sometimes the whole time is a little bit longer than I like in certain cases, but like there are people who answer the phone and they have to hire and train a lot of people just given the number of advisors. So I guess the core question I would have is like, it's one thing to point where their, their revenue is, but like, are they, are they that profitable? Like is the profitability of the business that high that sort of the implication is either you're charging charging quote unquote too much or you should be able to give back a little more you know the the old like your your margins your margins are my opportunity so is is the is the mar are the margins that good notwithstanding all the stuff that they say about how they need us to buy more of their funds and use more of the cash <laughs> yeah, yeah. sweeps and such yeah i think so um I think it makes a good point. So I'm not trying to belittle. Like a custodian has a, a, a tremendous amount of responsibility. They should do. They should do all the things you mentioned, right? So provide a, a safe, secure place for uh, securities to be held. I mean, the, the transaction should be done, um, you know, with uh, like um, a customer first sort of. Uh, matching of transactions, right? So they shouldn't be like selling all the order flow, right? And just like, you know, maximizing their profits or matching everything internally, but not pr providing price improvement to the customer. Like th there are things they should do. Like they, it just should be like, th these should be the, you know, minimal accepted standards. Like you should mm -hmm. absolutely be, be providing those things. Um, 
as far as how profitable it is, like obviously it depends on the platform. There's a couple there's a couple publicly traded custodians, so you can just like go pop and take a look at their their most recent earnings, and you kind of like can kind of see. But you'll find like a, a using like the the largest right player that's publicly traded, like Schwab, you know, their their net profit margins north of thirty percent. Um, so you know, are they profitable? Like, uh, yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, they're generating, you know, a couple billion dollars a quarter in, in profits, um, and sitting on, you know, tens of billions of dollars in, in cash and generating, you know, uh, I think, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of like 20, 25 billion a year in, in revenue. Of course, that's across like all their business lines. You know, so they get sure. to make money in asset management, their consumer business, it's advisor, et cetera, you know, but, um, but nonetheless, like, you know, th- there's, um, uh, uh, there, there's plenty of, 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 of profit margin there. Um, interestingly too, um, I don't think a lot of people understand that like a lot of the custodians actually leave a ton of revenue on the table, you know, like, and it's because of their like incredibly archaic processes for opening accounts. Um, and this is like a really big, interesting difference between, you know, like a Robinhood, for example, and a Schwab, again, two public companies. And if you were to look at, you know, how they monetize their various lines of business, um, you know, one of the things that's like qu- quite interesting is that, a lot of the really big older custodians, because everything that a client does has to be opted into via paperwork, most people just don't opt clients into certain things. So like if it was something like a um, fully paid securities lending uh, product, which, you know, is actually like all the all the big custodians want your clients to be in those programs, right? Because they actually right. can share in the revenue and, and provide free additional yield, you know, maybe 10 to 15 basis points of free yield for every customer. Like what a great net benefit. The challenge is if that's a two to four page form that you have to fill out manually and send in, their opt-in rates are like low single digits, you know, like very few people are even in those programs. So subsequently they generate very little revenue. Whereas if someone goes and opens a Robinhood account today on their phone, um, you're actually being default opted into that program. You can of course opt out if you want, but you know, again, if you're a digital custodian, us, Apex, you know, uh, Robinhood, et cetera, you have much higher opt-in rates to like the full bevy of services a custodian can provide, many of which are, again, actually things that give you additional yield at no cost to the customer. So, of course, they should be involved in them. But, you know, again, if it's if it requires paperwork, most advisors are going to take the path of least friction and subsequently not enroll those people in those programs. That's going to compress the gross for the custodian, which is going to make them, again, have to operate uh, more uh, a little bit more leanly. Um, and I think the other thing, too, is that, like, we have to keep in mind that most of the big players in the space, like, you know, look, they're trying really hard and, and, and they're smart and they're well capitalized. They're for sure going to get there. But today they don't operate with very high degrees of automation. So, you know, the number of people that are required, for example, to review and open accounts is extremely high. Um, whereas, you know, a very large percent of accounts could be entirely reviewed um, you know, um, algorithmically, like there wouldn't be, a, they, they should be done in a codified way. There shouldn't be a bunch of humans like reviewing every application. Um, but like, you know, you could take that times 50 different workflows, right. That are like massive service teams doing work and they're working hard and doing the best they can. But of course that comes at like two different costs, right. A lot of time and a lot of money and you know, this hurts their ability to do their best work. So I think there's like, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of been fun because again, I, I would say that like the Jason 10 years ago, I would have kind of been like, well, I just want my custodian to be a big name that my clients know, like, and trust. And I want them to do those basic things like open my accounts, trade my accounts efficiently and keep the money safe. Right. Right. The version of me today is like, I've been in the belly of this beast now for quite a long time. And 
you know, I just feel like they, they can and should do a lot more. And I know because we're, you know, we're, we're operating in that capacity and I, I get to see exactly like how this stuff works and exactly how monetization works and exactly how adoption works and exactly what the operating expenses are, um, you know, both on like a, a, on the whole, but also like on a per account or per advisor basis. So, you know, and, and the deeper I get into this, the more I realize like, um, wow, um, we've all been bamboozled for like decades, you know, um, these things should have been done. In fact, I was not wrong in 2004 when I questioned my sales rep at TD Waterhouse. Um, you shouldn't have to use external software to do your fee billing. Like it's way easier actually if the custodian just did it for you. So can you just break down for us a little bit more is just I don't know, like a, a, a moment of, of education for us all? Like how does this, you know, approximately 40 bips that uh, that a, a custodian makes on average. Like, just what are the actual revenue levers? Like, wh- where in practice does the custodial platform make money, and like, how much do they make from the the various buckets? Obviously, I realize like on, on average your mileage may vary, but just can you yeah. help educate us on how this works in practice? Well, I think the most simple one for people to understand is um, is cash, right? So net interest income, and uh, and a great way to think about it today is like today, um, you know, the effective funds rate is roughly five percent, and so um, so so just think about it this way: like they're making five percent on your client's cash in their in their FDIC sweep vehicles. Um, and so what percentage are your customers getting? Are your customers getting 50 basis points? Because if they are, then they're making 450. And that means that even if you only had, you know, whatever, uh, a very small percentage, you know, 5% of your 2%, right? Whatever, like a very small percentage, like they're, they're earning a lot of money, you know? So, um, you know, right. it's just on, percent, uh, on absolute yeah. dollars, if you just keep like a 2%, uh, a 2% cash allocation cuz you know the client's doing ongoing retirement withdrawals or something and you're and you're and you're trying to keep it handy like if they're making 4.5% on a 2% position that's actually 9 basis points just from cash yeah and i think what you'd find like is quite, quite interesting is that like um is that most of the larger firms are holding a lot more than 2% i mean when i say the, the custodians like if you actually like broke down and saw like, well, what percentage of assets are actually in, actually in cash? Um, it's qu- quite high, um, you know. So, uh, I mean, I know again, we, we have like this unique situation. Our software allows people to import their business from Schwab, Fidelity, TD Ameritrade, um, Pershing, etc. So we can actually see, well, what, what are people holding? And if you're looking at like all of the custodians, it's about 10%. (laughs) Like that's about what people are holding. And I don't know why, I don't know what these advisors are doing exactly, but they're holding 10% in cash. Oh, because you've got, you know, most of my clients are fully invested, but like, oh, you know, a couple of clients put in some recent deposits and I haven't allocated yet. And like a few people just transferred in full cash and I'm holding a little bit while before we do the meeting to firm up the investment policy statement to do it. But just if you... If you add up all the friction points where some stuff isn't fully invested yet across a whole advisory firm, it it starts adding up. Yeah. So that, that's one area that, that it's a lot. I think the, the, the other area that's actually a lot more than people would guess, again, not so much at Altruist, but at other custodians for sure, um, is um, they kind of define it. They'll call it asset management revenue, but that also includes 12B1 fees and mutual fund shelf space fees. Um, I, you know, I, of course, I have a strong opinion on this. It, it's it's my, my I'm speculating when I say this. Like maybe I'm just a conspiracy theorist, right? You know, most custodians don't allow fractional share trading, 
and, and you kind of have to go, why not? Like the technology has been around to support this for decades. It's not complicated. Like we did it day one, right? A startup with very minimal funding, right? Like it was not like comparatively to like the billions that some of these big, big companies make. So why don't they do that, right? Well, part of it is like my speculation is that um, they make a lot of money out of these. I mean, it's like it's it's like a lot, a lot of money. And I'm saying like, you know, it's like over 20% of, of some of the big custodians um, revenue. Um uh, and in fact, it's over thirty percent of some of their their revenues. Um, and but think about it this way: like if everyone could do fractional shares, there wouldn't be much of a need for a lot of mutual funds um, or ETFs, for that matter. Um, I, I know sometimes oh, direct index, particularly for all the advisors that do mutual funds for their for their small clients. Correct. Right. So you have people who have these accounts, um, but again, that's a mutual fund is the only thing you can buy. Um, at most custodians in dollar denominations or percentages or in fractional shares. Um, and you can't do it with ETFs and you can't do it with individual equities. Um, and the mutual fund companies, they have to pay a lot of money just to even be in those programs to even be on, you know, the platform. So there's like the fixed cost, there's the, the revenue share costs. Um, and then what people don't well, realize, it, it's also a way to make sure people have extra cash because if you can't buy whole shares, right? So if I'm going to go ETFs and stocks, I'm going to hold more cash than if I go mutual funds. If I go mutual funds, I'm going to earn more. I'm going to, I'm going to, the consumer's going to earn more money there. Um and, and so I think like, like people don't realize like that's a huge, huge um, area of, of revenue. Um, depending on the custodian, some people make payment for order flow, but it's actually really de minimis for advisors because most of us don't trade enough. Like it's like low single digit basis points. But, but you know, the, the two areas most consumers make a ton of money is going to be cash and again, these asset management related fees. But that also includes 12B1s and mutual fund distribution fees. Well, and to say, and the, the key part to me there is the and mutual fund distribution fees. So even if I'm the advisor, it's like, no, no, no. I, I don't, I don't like, I don't buy the 12B1 class. Like I'm buying the, you know, I'm buying the advisory class. I'm buying the, uh, uh, an, an institutional class or some equivalent. I may still have some layer of costs in here that I don't see that's still kicking back to the, uh, custodial platform. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, um, it, it, there's there's no such thing as free lunch in mutual funds. Like, um, you know, and I think like there's been one company, of course, that's refused to play ball on this. And that was Vanguard. Um, and you know, and so and now you know why they have separate trading fees from most platforms yeah. that are higher than everybody else. Correct, and because even companies like Dimensional, they pay a per, they still pay uh, for some percentage, a small percentage, right? But they still pay percentage for distribution on most platforms. Um, so they get like kind of an in-between treatment, you know, not quite the same commission treatment that Vanguard gets, but obviously still a commission treatment because they're not paying the same level of distribution as, you know, maybe a traditional open-end, you know, 40 act fund would have. Which I think is powerful just when you process that as an advisor to say like, you know, the, the, the additional charges that get tagged onto funds like Vanguard and DFA, like, you're not actually paying more necessarily. You're just paying different because yeah, well said. everybody else just has a is paying off the back end, which is like why their expense ratios tend to be a little bit lower than some of their competition because they stripped out the back end costs, but then your client's paying it in ticket charges because the custodian's gonna get their layer one way or another. Yeah. And look, I think like in, in the end, you know, um I don't have any problem with people, obviously, considering uh, earning revenue. I mean, like, of course, they should earn revenue, and you know, um, and, and as advisors should, and as asset managers should, and as software companies should. Um, I, I just like I think where my um, where, where I where I go with a lot of this stuff is like it um, kind of back to that like you know those early problems I was trying to solve you know twenty some years ago, which is like, like how do we how do we get things to be more accessible? Like how do, how do we 
get things to be more fair? Like, how do we solve some of these conundrums of like underperformance where, you know, you see these studies about how the average investor underperforms by one and a half percent, you know, or you know, more, you know, on, on rolling 10 year periods, you know, and they have been forever. And, and, and then I think as advisors, we sometimes we discount like all of these little things. Um, but, but, but if, if you actually measure them, right. And, and we know this because we have the data now, like we have, you know, uh, you know, you know, many accounts, right. And, and, and many tens of billions in assets, right. We, we, and we can like, we, we can see this, like, it's very, very crystal clear to us now that like, if you start getting all these little things, right, it's amazing what of a difference that can make to the actual outcomes for investors. And, you know, I think that, um, you know, and these are going to be things like minimizing cash issues in account. You can do that by fractional shares and automating trading, you know, minimizing, like taking no rev share on any mutual funds whatsoever, which is like what we do, right? Zero, like, sorry. So, so we don't, we don't have any bias. We just want you to do what's absolutely best for your, your client, right? This is going to hopefully, you know, uh, create less of a bias for us to try to push a certain philosophy on, you know, advisors and their customers. Like, I, I think like, you know, if, if we think about like, um, uh, uh, things like the, what, what what could happen um, with individual security ownership, like if direct indexing or personalized indexing, like does take off, like in you know uh, the heck with the haters on it, like, like there's a lot of like I think empirical evidence to suggest that, but to prove that like um, people feeling connected to their money allows them to stay more committed to their their, their investment plan. If they stay stay more committed to their investment plan, they're going to stay more committed to their financial plan. Like they, they can achieve us ultimately better outcomes. They can also greatly reduce the internal costs of, of investing, and they can also um, minimize some of the tax inefficiencies. Like so, in a nutshell, like it's, it's funny, you know, but but I feel like um, if you if you can't get this custody layer right, nothing else, in my opinion, like matters a whole lot. You know, like you do the best financial plan in the world, but if you're like introducing an extra percent of friction because of all these other things that are not done well, you're just going to like make it much harder for a client to be successful. When you can kind of see, right? They they tend to well, I guess as you pointed out, sometimes they have friction because they sort of self inflicted with the technology, but sometimes they create friction in the areas that will tend to tilt towards their model, right? You know, uh, totally. so, you know, you get defaulted to their cash sweep and then you have to trade out of it if you want something different. You know, you, as you point out, like maybe one of the reasons why fractional share adoption has been slower is because they, if you have to, air quotes, have to trade into mutual funds, that turns out to to be better for their economics. So are, are, are there other material revenue levers besides cash um, mutual fund scrapes and order flow. Yeah. And, and so margin's a big one, right? So if you can get people to use margin, you earn a lot there. Um, certain if, security if clients actually, really well. actually trade on margin and take on margin. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And if, if, tra- if people trade options, options are like, uh, you know, extremely, um, you know, profitable for custodians. Um, and the last was when I mentioned, you know, fully paid lending is, as again, it's, it's, it's a, it can be a great uh, um, revenue generator, but it's also great for clients. Um, but it, it's one of those kind of like, I'd say almost underutilized, you know, forms of revenue generation where it's net better for everybody, but because it's so hard for firms that are non-digital to do it, um, not, you know, most students wish they did it more, but they, but they're so, unable to. So can you explain like fully paid lending, securities lending for folks that don't actually know some of the guts of how that works? Yes, yeah, so, so it's, it's relatively straightforward, but um, you know there there are certain securities that are called hard to borrow securities. It's it's a small percentage of the universe. It's like maybe five percent or thereabouts of all um, tradable securities. Um, a lot of times, it's going to be like small and mid cap stocks, and then um, more thinly traded ETFs. You know that don't have tons and tons of liquidity. Um, and and so yeah, so it would work as if like if, if if Michael wanted to short a security hypothetically, or you know he needed to create liquidity, maybe because he runs a fund and just needs some liquidity but doesn't want to actually, um, you know, trade an actual position. Um, so he wants to borrow and make a trade, right? So he's going to 
borrow those securities. In this case, it'd be a, I'm using the example of a short seller. Um, and so they need to borrow it from someone. And um, advisors are great people to borrow securities from because most of them don't hyperactively trade. So they're more buy and hold investors. Um, you never lend out all your securities, right? Like a, a most firms would lend out a very small percentage, again, just two, three, four percent of their entire book of business. Um, but it, it allows sort of the financial markets to have more liquidity uh, than they would otherwise. Of course, when you when you lend that security to someone else so they can sell it, they have to post collateral so that way it doesn't have any risk to your customer. And they have to post the collateral in cash and it has to be recapitalized every day. Um, most people have to post 102 to 103% uh, collateral. So again, if Michael wants to borrow $10,000 worth of one of my stocks, um, he's going to have to post $10,300 um, in cash. And every day we're going to recalculate what his, um, you know, what his collateral is, and he's going to have to post that um, to the, the lending firm. The lending firm takes that cash and they get to invest it and they make the entire margin on the cash, right? So if cash is paying 5%, like they literally make 5% on that cash. They share 25% or 30% or some percentage with the customer. And then because they're the facilitator and the record keeper, they keep the balance. So it's a great win-win for everybody. There's also a rebate since the short sellers likely doing this again on margin, they're paying a margin rate. So part of that margin rate gets paid to the, um, uh, the, the lender as a rebate. Look, it, it sounds really maybe hard for simple to comprehend, but when, when this all happens, you know, there's probably six to eight percent in today's economy that's like being generated, depending on the position um, in revenue for every transaction. So imagine if only five percent of your book of business uh, as a custodian was in one of these pools and being used for lending. Again, this stuff all changes; it's very fluid, so changing throughout every day. But imagine earning eight percent on five percent of your business. Right? You're, you're pretty good at math, so I suspect you can do that just as yeah, fast so as like I there, can. There's another forty bips. Like that's a lot of revenue. Just, right? um, just on just on that. Correct. Now, again, 25% goes back or 30 or thereabouts, right? But goes back to the customer. Again, that's where the customer can earn 10 to 15 basis points of, so, like, so to speak, free money just by like holding their securities with the, you know, uh, the right custodian. And the custodian puts in, you know, 26, 28, 30 basis points to their um, top line, right? So, you know, these are things where when you start looking at these different um, elements, um, again, I think it's, 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 um, uh, it's shocking sometimes when I tell people like if a custodian was actually run really, really, really well, like really, really well, like you were, you know, you were the, uh, you know, Henry Ford, right? Like, you know, kind of like of custody, right? Where it's like you figured out how to run it better than everyone else, right? Everyone else is manufacturing 30,000 cars a year. You're doing 785,000 cars a year, right? Like you're just so much more efficient on all levels. You're paying twice the wages. Your workers are working half as much, right? Like, because you, you've just figured out how to like actually build the most amazing custody platform with all the efficiencies. What's really wild about this, right? Is like, your customers win. Like your customers actually get the best outcome. Like in the you know Henry Ford Model T example, right? Like he innovated with the uh, you know um, uh, the assembly line. Cars went down in price fifty percent. You know, right. even though employees made more and worked less. Like everybody won because of all the efficiency gains. So. I think like, again, the, the most well-run custody platform in the world will actually generate more revenue than the custodians do today while putting meaningfully more money back into the pockets of the customers and saving massive amounts of time and money for the advisors. Like it is not a dissimilar structure where it's like, the, the, you know, like inventing custody is kind of like, you know, it's already been done, right? Just like cars were already done. In this case, it's, it's like, how do you, how do you make it better? Um, and, and I, and I think like, again, there's a lot of ways to make it better. Like understanding like how the revenue lines work is all, all fine and dandy, but you also have to do this in a way that's just incredibly obviously better for the advisor and the customer. Like it has to be so much better, um, that you get way past 
the innovators and the early adopters, right? right, you, get right. The, you get the early majority, the late majority, and even the laggards. And that only happens if like what you're doing is so substantially better than what it was prior. And I, and I think like there's opportunity for that to happen just based on like, you know, even our conversation today and hopefully people's understanding of like the economics and the efficiencies that are out there. And I guess the crux of it from some of your positioning as well is look, if a custodian can make $400,000 on a $100 million client base, or maybe five or six hundred thousand dollars when you like run all the things really efficiently and get people opted into the things they should be opting into and all the stuff that goes with it to say like you know can i figure out how to build and offer portfolio management and performance reporting software that has a retail rate of 10 grand per advisor when i might make half a million dollars of revenue per advisor the answer is like i'm just going to build the tech and include it because i've got more than enough economics to do that uh, yeah, totally. And, and what it's worth, like they should be able to do it way better, right? Because I mean, like you know, actually about, sitting like, on the data, like you just you have it. You don't have to send it out. Yeah. Have everybody else reconcile it and figure out how well, to display and, it. You just have it. And you have an economic advantage over every software company on the planet, right? right? Like again, like n- n- none of these software developers um, are ever going to touch the economics of the custodians um, unless they be- become them themselves. Which is, I think, why you see a trend, <laughs> you know, of you know, investnet adding, you know, introducing broker dealer, giving them some form of rev share, you know, on their platform. You know, I, I wouldn't be shocked if you don't see some of our big, bigger software players that now also run TAMPs, you know, potentially add um, introducing broker dealer components so they can participate in revenue share with their custodian, right? right? There's this point where it's like, you know, all these things start to become like, you know, I hate to admit this, but like, you know, they become very financially driven and, and, and you know, like, like there'll come a point where like very few people will be able to compete. Like it'll be, you know, you'll have to be full stack to be competitive because like the, 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 the full stack competitors, those who are good. And again, they get this right. Are going to have like, you know, they're they're just going to have like a hundred times or a thousand times, right. The economics of everyone else. Um, And and so like, yeah, you're going to be able to have the best talent. Like you're going to be able to have, um, you know, uh, you know, the biggest marketing budgets, like you're like, whatever. And I'm suggesting that's like what it should be, but like, that just seems to be like what I'm observing is like, okay, that's probably the direction we're headed. Um, And, and so, yeah, like for sure, the custodians should be building the software and they should be able to build it better. um, And they should, should be able to make it available for free. Or again, I think you've made this comment in the past, like, or they should just charge for it and give all the economics that they get to the clients. And then what it really comes down to is who gives the best economics to the clients right. and that's who's going to win, right? If everything, if everyone just admitted it said, hey, listen, custody is going to be worth 40 bips. We're all going to pay 40 bips. Every custodian is going to adopt the same pricing so they're not non-competitive. And then it becomes a world of which clients get the most, you know? The yeah, biggest who's, who's getting the most for my dollar? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, right, that's right now to me, the weird right reality there. is... I, I literally don't even have just like as an average advisor, you know, if, if I'm either comparing custodians or I'm multi-custodial, I literally can't even tell who's who's more expensive. Like I don't actually even know which one is incurring greater costs to my clients because I can't actually see what anybody charges. Yeah, no, I, 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 uh, I think again, these are this is why I said like, hey, there's, there, there's the all the solutions aren't well formed in in, in market yet. Um, but I, I think I, I'm, I'm really. I'm really glad that these conversations are happening. And I've noticed, you know, I, I, to, not to give you a big head here, but like, you know, you, you guys were one of the first to really dig deep and publish information on custodians and how they work and the differences. You know, I think that, um, you know, again, that information didn't exist 20 years ago, yeah. probably didn't even exist five or six years ago. Um, but, you know, uh, ever since commissions went to zero, um, finally, advisors had to start asking, mm-hmm. well, how do you make money? Yeah. You know, 
even though the commissions were like five to seven or yeah, whatever. I mean, it was, it, whatever, you know, was the, the truth was the commissions were such a small percentage of revenue for, I mean, particularly Schwab. That's part of why they did it because it hurt their competition more than it hurt them. So they, they, yeah. they fell on that lever first and, and made it up on the others. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, lots, lots of work still to be done, but it's, it's encouraging that at least the conversations are happening. People might be thinking a bit more, um, and ever to get any innovation to ever be widely, widely adopted, there has to be, um, uh, access to information and, and people have to feel good about the decisions they're making. So, you know, without, without the information out there, we'll we'll never actually see adoption that forces change, um, that ends up putting more dollars in people's pockets and, and start solving some of these wealth you know, gap conundrums we have um, here in the States. So Jason, as you look on this journey of 20 plus years of building, what what surprised you the most about building solutions in the advisor industry? Um, I, I think uh, as far as surprises, I mean, gosh, I, I, uh, I, I learn something new all the time, um, every day, pr- pretty much. Um, if I say something that, like is that's surprising to me, um, the most is that, you know, here we are in industry. I remember what drew me when I, you know, when I was someone who had zero financial experience, I was looking at all the different ways I could be a financial advisor, you know, when I was coming, coming off my, my internet, uh, you know, 401k experiment. Um, and I looked at all the ways, right. Registered reps, go work at a bank, work at a warehouse. And I, and I remember when I read about an RIA and what that meant, a registered investment advisor, a fiduciary duty to put your client's interest before your own. Um, I mean, I just felt like, gosh, that is exactly what I would want. Like, why would anyone want anything different than somebody who's legally obligated to do this, like to do the right thing? Um, like, that just seems like the only way it should be. Um, and I guess like probably one of the biggest learnings over the last 20 years is, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people with genuinely good, um, they, they mean well, their hearts are in the right place, but their decisions are not, um, yeah, I'm not sure how, how many people are actually like living up to that fiduciary duty. Like, there's still a lot of people that I'll meet with that'll say, yeah, I know what you're doing is obviously better for my clients, um, but I'm in the referral program and I get sent free leads, you know, from my custodian and I can't give up that lead source, right? And I'm like, there's nothing fiduciary about that at all. You know, like that's a business decision you're making. That's what's in your best interest. It's not what's in your client's best interest, right? But, um, and I think the same thing is true about, you know, a lot of the the different kind of tools and resources. Like I just, I, I, I maybe I'm just like naive, I suppose, but I, I can't understand how we don't we don't all just rally around the fact that like we should demand what's best for clients and we should only accept what's best for clients. And if we are ever presented with the facts that there is something that's far better for my clients, I should probably get over my insecurities about my business um, and I should start presenting those things to my clients. So at least they're aware of them. And, and if they want to opt out of them, then so be it. Um, you know, that's one thing. And I think, you know, the other uh, thing I might just share, you know, it's for me anyway, it's never gotten easier. Um, there's this, uh, I, I think it was a cyclist. I wish I could recall whom to give proper credit to, but they, they were questioned about after winning, you know, multiple Tour de France's, um, you know, if it gets any easier as they get older. And I think the way they responded was that, um, you know, the training and all the work that you put into it never gets easier. You just go farther. Um, and I think our industry is much the same, you know, when you do this for a long time, um, it, it, when I was young, I was naive. I thought it's just going to get easier. It's going to get easier. It's going to get easier. Um, but what I found is that, um, I keep choosing to do really challenging, hard things, but I'm able to accomplish more, you know, I'm getting more going farther. And, and that's certainly I, been a big surprise. I like that framing. Like when you do all the training, it still doesn't get easier. You just, you just go farther. Cause I, I do, I've, I've certainly have felt some of that in building businesses over the years as well. I feel like there's this business owner 
mentality of like, if I can just get a little bit bigger, weaker, a little bit more, I can finally like hire that position I need or like buy that tech or like do that thing, right? There's just a, like, if I had a little bit more money and revenue, I could finally do that other thing that I've been wanting to do to solve this pain point in my business. And then the inevitable reality is then you grow a little bigger and other problems arise because there's just, is kind of a like more money, more problems, challenges that happen as businesses grow in scale. I'm like, you never, ever get there. The problems just change and morph as the company grows and goes through different stages and needs different things. And so at some point, like you just have to relish playing the game of solving the next problem because if you're trying to grow to the point where you finally got enough money to make all the problems go away, like you never, you never get there. You may get better at solving the problems. And again, I like that. You know, it doesn't get easier, but you do go further as you build the experience and the skill set. But that that just that really resonates to me at a personal level as well of what that what that dynamic is like as you keep trying to grow and scale. I feel incredibly fulfilled and happy, but I'm I'm far, I'm far more realistic today yeah. than I was probably 20 years ago. And I um, you know and I realized that um, yeah if you're if you're aspiring to do something like what you believe to be incredibly important, um, it probably doesn't happen in a day or yeah. week or year but, or even a decade. But you know, Gen X thing, we wear our we wear our cynicism with pride now. <laughs> well seeing reality bites. So so what was the low point for you on this journey? Um, I think the lowest point for me, um, you know, I think when I stepped down from formula folios and, um, and so, you know, I, uh, when, when I sold my client base, you know, to another advisor, um, you know, that I, I felt very convicted about that advisor being just the perfect fit for those clients. And, um, and, and he has been, he's been just, the clients are so much better off. He's so much more capable and, and, and accessible, you know? And, and so I, I just very, very, I'm glad for all those clients. It's just such a, it worked out so well really for everybody. Um, when you sell a big firm, you know, anyone who's ever built something and sold it, um, it's really hard. Like I was very proud of the work I did at formula folios. I built what I thought was a really world-class team. And, you know, we had a, we did, we did a lot of things, um, you know, no pun intended, but in a very altruistic way, like just treated people, I think, really well. And it's really hard to, to sell something and and then watch it just disappear. You know, and I think, uh, mm. you know, I, I talked to a lot of a lot of advisors, you know, they're, they're very, very proud of their brands. You know, it's like they built this logo and brand and so proud of it. And I don't know that all of them would believe me if i told them that i don't care how much money they put in their brand i don't care how great they thought their brand was when they sell that company they've probably got six months before that brand is erased from you know eviscerated from earth you know and all of it like it's It's almost in general when you sell a company you tend to sell it to someone who's bigger and bigger companies tend to value their brand even more because they're bigger and put more into it whether or not, I mean, my company was twice the size of the company I sold to. Um, I mean, technically, I sold to private equity. They merged it with a company that was smaller, and then you know that then. But as those new leaders had their own views, right? Their views were different yep. than my view, right? So they changed the culture, they changed the brand, and I'd say, like you know, although that, I mean, that, that's I'm pretty lucky if that's my lowest point. Yeah. You know, it's like you know, sold the company, and but I had to watch people get laid off, jobs be eliminated. Um, you know. Uh, you know, just things changed that I felt deeply were the, the, the way they should be done, changed into to different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying that was right, by the way, like maybe the, the new way was the right way. Yeah. But, um, 
there's different and it's hard to accept that. Yeah. So I certainly have like a, 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 a lot of guilt around that time period. And, um, uh, but you know, um, otherwise, you know, like it, I think like that um, perseverance is probably an underrated quality for entrepreneurs um, because like at this point, like I'm, I've got so many scars. I don't even feel the wounds anymore, I guess, you know, it's like, uh, like it just uh, hundreds of mistakes that I've made and, you know, probably been, uh, yeah, like mistreated by other people lots of times. Um, but, but all that being said, like if I'm, if I'm really being vulnerable, you know, with myself or, or with others, like, I mean, I, I would admit like, you know, how hard it is and, uh, to be an entrepreneur and, and, um, and, uh, in the faster you can grow really thick skin and just be focused on, you know, what matters most, like whatever your North star is, uh, I would hope it's, it's clients, right? Like, I mean, like for me, it's like, there's, there's absolutely nothing more important than how do we, better serve people who need financial advice and financial planning and financial help. Um, but if that's where you're focused, then you should probably not really give two about like all the other stuff. So anything else that like you, you know, and have learned now about building and scaling that you could wish you could like go back and tell you from 15, 20 years ago, when you were <laughs> just starting to build. Well, I, th I think being patient would probably be, um, you know, again, easy to say now, but like I, I, I was, I was impatient uh, in my young entrepreneurial years, you know, and, um, but, but I can say that like, uh, you know, I've had, I've had people ask a lot, you know, especially like after starting Altruist, which is very different, you know, it's a very different type of company, although related, but it's just a very different, like um, structurally, it's like an incredibly hard thing to do and, and requires a very different skill set actually than building a, an RIA or a traditional software company. And, um, it, but they've asked a lot, a lot about like, you know, like, well, why start that? I was 38 years old when I started it. And I, and I tell people like, like, I don't think I could have done it at 35. I couldn't have done it at 32. I couldn't have done certainly couldn't have done it at 25. Right. Like I actually had to go through a lot of, I had to learn a lot of things, you know, in order to be like ready for the moment. And, and it's because like, like, it's not just a technical challenge. Like, yes, there's technical challenge. It's not just a fundraising challenge, but yes, it, it's, it's a, it takes a lot of money to build a custodian. Um, uh, it's not just a go-to-market strategy challenge, like you know, finding product market fit, but it definitely is one of those too, right? And and so if I if I was looking back at those early younger versions of me, I'd be like, hey, like just take it in, like be patient, like it, it, like accept that like all of those things that you're going through are phenomenal learning experiences that will shape you to do maybe something much bigger down the road. Um, because I feel like to do what I'm doing today, like I had to have all of those things, you know, and I had, I had to have even some level of reputation in the industry where there was, you know, like if I had, I'd been totally an outsider, I think it might've been more challenging. So, um, so yeah, I hope any advisor, if they're, you know, like, you know, I, I don't know if they have this, I always had this, I'm kind of like, man, I wish I was doing something bigger. Like I, I just want to do something like more important, you know, I want to, I, I want to affect a change that, you know, is like, in, like really meaningful, like millions of people's lives, like in, in, in material, like, you know, maybe trillions of dollars of like better economic gain for like the average human. And, and, you know, like, um, and that's really, really overwhelming. Um, and, and so consequently, like, like it's easy to like diminish like the work that you're doing right now, like, Oh, this isn't that important, you know, but like, I would say like, it does not matter what someone's doing today. Like they should be absolutely, um, like, yeah, like learn as much as you possibly can, like perform it at like the highest level you, you possibly can. Um, and use it as an opportunity to prepare yourself for like, if you ever want to go do that really big next thing, like you're going to be much more well, you know, equipped to do it. Um, and certainly for me, that that's um, something I can only say today, because yeah, if you would have talked to me 10 years ago, I probably would have been a lot more bitter <laughs> about like my, my lack of progress, because I, I think I should have been doing more faster uh, in those early years. So what comes next 
for you? Well, I'm super happy doing what I'm doing. Um, and, you know, it, it, uh, interestingly, like if someone was to look at like the, the timeline of my last 20, uh, roughly three years sort of in this industry, um, my longest tenure uh, of doing anything was approximately six years. Um, and I'm four and a half years in here. And like, I can't imagine doing anything else for the next decade plus. Um, like I just, and, and part of it's because I think that like, um, you know, this is the proverbial sort of like, you know, uh, you know, whatever tip of the iceberg as far as what we're doing with custody. Like I've kind of said, like, I, I think that without having like um, an infrastructure layer, sort of an operating system, if you will, that that um, allows for really rapid innovation, like, then everyone else is just kind of like piling on to, you know, bad infrastructure. So I'm really excited about not just things we can build here, but, you know, supporting hopefully, you know, another generation of great entrepreneurs who, who, who have great ideas and they just needed to have, um, you know, sort of an ecosystem to build on. And, and so I think that's pretty exciting and so I'm pretty focused on positioning like positioning altruist years. as a, an ecosystem you build in kind of like the way that TD Ameritrade did with, with VO, like they were the big open platform. And so a whole bunch of innovation, new building happened there because they, they were the accessible platform for all the new companies going to market. With no disrespect to the people who worked on that that project, I, I hope like our impact is um, is like immeasurably greater. You know, I think like the um, having like some open APIs as a layer is is one thing. Um, uh, being a true um, like operating system is an entirely different thing. You know, so when you think about like you know like the iPhone wouldn't have been a whole lot of value had there not been an app store, and so um, all those app developers is really like part of why. You know that became sort of the de facto, you know, uh, smartphone of, of choice for a number of years, and I think you know uh, Android has a similar, you know, kind of um, network effect. We have no network effect in our industry, as far as I can tell. Um, you know, like there's there's not like, you know, there's not like a um, a center of the universe, so to speak. You know, you've got like a, a bit of a, you know, again a bit of a duopoly of sorts, you know, in terms of custody, but like you can't build off from those things, right? So like, then you have like a whole layer of innovation trying to happen in a bit of a, you know, I don't know, like a no man's land of sorts, right? right? Sort of like this weird purgatory where you can only go as far as you can go. Um, and uh, and so I, 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 I do think that like, um, you know, the, the, uh, the possibilities, if we could ever build a true, you know, network effect where it's like all of these innovations are actually assisting one another, um, would be incredibly powerful instead of like, oh, I've got to do like 16 different like disparate integrations, like which just really slows down um, like the development of technology, but also right. greatly slows down the adoption of it. Um, you know, whereas, you know, on my phone, I can very quickly toggle between three or four different apps, like completely seamlessly, you know, but like you cannot do that on anything in our industry. And it's because the sort of infrastructure or operating system layer. And, you know, you'll hear people talk about like, oh yeah, we're building the operating system of wealth. And I'm like, well, no, you're not. If you're not a custodian, you're not. Like full stop, end of story. It's not even possible. You are a middleware provider trying to aggregate tools and services. And you're always going to be at the mercy of what a custodian will allow you or not allow you to do. And so it'd be no different than like, if someone's like, oh, I'm building a productivity suite of software. It's like, okay, that's great. But if like the operating system doesn't want you on it, you're not on it, right? And so I, I just feel like, you know, there, there's there's um, there's so much fun work to do, and and yeah, like I think in terms of like what, what we go with altruists, like it's um, like probably the most intimidating thing is like 
all of the things that we can do versus like some of my past, you know, um, journey, you know, kind of uh, was more like I'd reach a point where I'd go, I can see the end. I can see it very clearly. I can see how close I am to it and it would, and it would bother me. And I'd want to do like the next big challenge. Like here, I'm like, my biggest challenge, I cannot see the end. Like I, it's so ma- mm. macro, right? Like there's, there, there's such an enormous change that's possible that it's like hard for me to really comprehend it. And like, that's both intimidating, but also like, like extraordinarily freeing, like in, in exciting. Very cool. Very cool. So as we come to the end, this is a, a podcast about success. And it's one of the themes that comes up is the, the word success means very different things, to different people. And so you know, you've had literally multiple successful companies that have been built and and exited. So you you you've done the success thing by any classic entrepreneurial measure. How do you define success for yourself at this point? Well, I, th- I think two things. I think impact is like an obvious uh, form form of success, um, and uh, and and so. And, and that's like a cliche thing to say that, I mean, to be like super transparent, it's like, yeah, once you've made more money than you could spend in your lifetime, then you don't care about money a whole lot anymore. And that's a very like greedy, like kind of gross thing to say. Like I feel dirty even saying it, but it's like, hey, I've already made a bunch of money. I don't really get that motivated by money anymore. Um, but part of this was I never did this to make a bunch of money. No one ever knew it. I never knew anybody who had any money. So, you know, money's never been like really a big driver. Um, uh, but, but, but it certainly becomes a lot easier to say impact. Like, um, when you feel like, Hey, like my, my family's going to be okay, no matter what. But, but I think like, you know, so, so, so impact like to me is like, um, it's different. Like some people are like, Hey, impact is like, Hey, I helped one person that, that would have otherwise not been able to get help. And like, that's incredibly rewarding. And I, and I think like I aspire to have that type of impact, like one-to-one impact, like helping people. Like, I think that's important, but, you know, to me, like success is ultimately going to be um, like, uh, like, you know, creating entirely new industry standards. Like, you know, like, um, uh, yeah, like I would say, um, you know, cr- creating sort of like iconic, you know, kind of change. Uh, not, not for me personally so much as to say like the industry, I hope we have like a moment where like, ah, oh, yeah, that was the era where like everything changed. And we got a lot more focused on like helping a broad subset of people. Um, and it became less about serving the mass affluent and, and affluent and ultra high net worth. And it, it, it like, like it all of a sudden became, you know, uh, about helping, you know, whatever the 150 million people who wish they could get an advisor, but they can't today because there's, you know, there's, there's not enough advisor, um, right. you know, economics maybe in serving those folks. So like, so you know, I mean, it's at this point, like, I, 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 I feel like I've done a lot. So I'm pretty content, you know, in some respects. Um, but, but I think impact is really important. But the, the other thing I was going to say is like, I think it's to happiness and, and, um, and happiness is actually like just contentedness, you know? And I think, um, to be very clear, like I, I still think I have a lot to give. Um, look, if, if ultimately ultras failed and like, I completely, it was a complete flop. Like, uh, I forget where, where to attribute this to, but like, there's this saying that, um, you know, pursue something that's so important and so meaningful that even if you fail, the world's a better place because of it. Um, and so I feel like I'm doing that right now. Like I, I'm getting a chance to do something I'm really passionate about. And I, although I don't think it will fail, like if it did fail, I think I'd be happy. Like, I'd just be happy that I gave, I did the best I could. Um, and, uh, and I've been doing it for a long time. And I think my best, best I could tell is I think I'd, I think I'd be, I'd be willing to just stop and, uh, and go spend time with my family at this point. So, you know, if people can get to a point in their career where they go, Hey, I just, I'm just pursuing impact and, and I'm, and I'm at a place of happiness, um, then, then I, I would say that's like a really great definition of success. Well, very cool. I'm, I'm 
I'm still excited to hear, see more of your journey between here and whatever that endpoint is while you keep building the thing you're building. Yeah, well, it's plenty of work to do, and uh, and I appreciate the uh, the platform and, and the support, and uh, it's been a ton of fun. Absolutely, thank you, Jason, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.